Well, this is it. Last day. Uh, I guess I need to check in with you guys. I didn't see all of you last night. I saw you, and I didn't have a good chance to talk to all of you. How was last night? Pretty incredible, right? Pretty incredible, and I think we all owe, if we didn't before, an amazing debt of gratitude to all of the different organizations that came together to start this city on a new trajectory and to save that amazing space. I, I, I have fallen in love with this town. How are you guys feeling about Detroit? It is the comeback city. Are you gonna come back here? Good, 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 good. Uh, this was originally where I was gonna tell you where we're going next year, but I'm just a big tease. I'm not gonna tell you yet. I know, I know, I'm sorry. I have a couple things I wanna do though, and I will tell you, but not yet. So, uh, first thing is, you probably know, uh, we believe deeply in sustainability. That's why I'm standing here with my hand on a big white and green box. This is a TerraCycle box. Those of you who were in with us in San Diego last year, you probably already know what this is, but, but maybe you don't or you don't remember. This thing is really cool. You should bring this to your offices. This thing will take anything under the sun, except maybe your breakfast or your lunch. You stick it in here, and this company, TerraCycle, will either recycle it or upcycle it. So, the reason I'm showing this to you is, Tristan, you wanna come grab this and we'll, we'll put it out? Uh, we've got a couple of these out in the lobby, so if and as you're leaving, there's something you don't want, can't imagine what that might be, but if there's something you don't want, your badge, I guess I'm not carrying mine, uh, you can toss it in there and we will take the responsibility for ensuring it goes where it needs to go so that it doesn't go into a landfill. Uh, also, Chad, I assume you're in the room, I fixed it. Um, that's important. Don't get me wrong, it is really important that we be mindful when we come to these places. We leave them at least as good as we found them. And I think we've done that. I think hopefully we've made a whole bunch of fans of this amazing, incredible, historic, and important city. A city whose story is not over, it's just beginning. How many people were in with Ryan this morning uh, and, the, and the folks from the mayor's office? I see a few hands. I wish I was in there with you. I heard it was incredible. Yeah? Is that right? It was great? Okay. So. I also, this is where I get just a little heavy for just a second. I know a number of you were walking in here with bags. I assume that means that you are leaving or you're moving in here. I don't think you're welcome to do that. Um, I think most of you, I feel like I know, I know most of you, but I feel like I know all of you. I feel like this is probably your practice, but let me play, you know, sort of scold for a moment. If you haven't left a little something for the people who've been making up your room over the last couple of days, please go do so. Not right this instant, you can even do it at the front desk, but most of the people who have been taking care of us, the hotel staff here, they have been remarkable, they have been amazing, and it's the right thing to do, okay? Please make sure you take care of the people who have been taking care of you, all right? Uh, we are gonna call a little audible because there is a gentleman who I am fortunate enough, in fact, it's one of the great honors of my life to be able to call him a friend, who wanted to say a few words to you, uh, Dr. Clarence B. Jones. And we'll get underway in a minute. The few words I want to say are simply, I wanted to, uh, since I can't, I mean, I can't thank everybody individually, but I wanted to thank all of you. So many of you, since I have uh, come back this year, have been so gracious, so warm, and coming up to me and thanking me, and, and I'm a little overwhelmed by that thank you for um, um, my being here last year and speaking with you. And, um, and, I've, and I've, I've often reflected on um, that experience, and I thought about you as uh, last week when I knew I was coming here and I was, at the, I was uh, invited to see the uh, opening of the African American History Museum culture. And I went through that, and I, and I knew I was coming here. And I remembered some of the things that I said to you last year. Um, and believe it or not, you may think it was a one-way street, my speaking to you. But I learned a lot from you. I learned a lot from things you said to me. I learned a lot from some of the emails that some of you said to me after we left. And so briefly is that, you know, I, I, one of the courses I teach is the art of advocacy speech, art of advocacy speech writing. And all of you are engaged in this sacred uh, art of communication and the use of words. 
But since I've come to participate with you, I've seen you, I've listened to you, and I've seen the elevation of the content and the understanding of what you say when you communicate. Because you remember last year, I came on pretty strong to you about saying, you know, you represent all of this accumulated wealth and speak for this, and you have a responsibility to try to change, to make changes. And based upon what I followed and read and heard from you, I am so pleased, so proud, and so grateful to be a part of the ComNet family. You honor me. You honor me, and all I can say very simply is thank you. I guess I'm about to give Tanya Allen the worst job in America right now, <laughs> following Dr. Clarence B. Jones. Uh, you all got to meet Tanya yesterday, uh, if you were with us for the panel on the Grand Bargain. She's the president and CEO of the Skillman Foundation, and uh, she is somebody I have admired, and uh, based on what I heard yesterday, her courage, her forthrightness, her willingness to tell it as it is and as she sees it, she is a, a extraordinary and amazing force in our sector, and I hope we all wake up one day and, uh, and end up being just a little bit more like Tanya. So, Tanya, if you would, please come on up to the stage. Good morning, everybody. So I have the um, privilege of introducing Charles Blow. I want to first just welcome him back to Detroit. I understand that he uh, spent a couple of years here um, at the Detroit News, which is one of our local papers. Um, I know that in your materials, in your app, I believe, you have his full bio. So I told him to, uh, that he had to tell me something special so that I would look good up here. <laughs> He's like, there's nothing special. I was like, this is not about you. This is about me. <laughs> uh, but he, we actually start joking and talking about it. And one of the things he shared with me was that um, he grew up and everybody called him Charles Baby because he was the youngest kid in the neighborhood. So everybody in the neighborhood, all of the other children went to school. And he stayed home in the neighborhood. And he was pretty much raised by all of the elders and all of the seniors in his community. And you can see exactly what that did and how it rubbed off on him. I mean, so here is a man who has the confidence that you can only get when you're really loved and when somebody calls you Charles baby. Like, so I think I'm the only person that calls him Charles baby now, along with Mrs. Brown uh, from his hometown. But you have, to have, you have to have truly been loved to have the confidence and the fortitude to speak with such brilliance, um, with such courage, uh, and with such clarity that Charles has been doing as a uh, New York Times columnist. Uh, and as well, when you read his book, um, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, you see the passion, you see um, the forthrightness, but you also see the gentleness that you would see um, uh, from what he was able to glean from his upbringing. Uh, so I wanted to just also share a couple thoughts about that. Um, when I think about what work Charles is doing, it is really about helping clarify the context for all of us. And so you all know that we work at foundations, and foundations tend to like to focus on the content. You know, we want to figure out what the solution is, what does the data tell us that we can do and use, and we also want to look the smartest of them all. And you, as communication professionals, are tasked <laughs> with this um, uh, great thing to make everybody, each of your foundations look good and to prove that you know the content. But I think one of the things that we miss as foundations, quite honestly, is that we miss the context. Content has no meaning without context. And I think that Charles Blow 
creates the context for us. So I'm gonna, uh, I'm so grateful to be able to introduce him. I'm so grateful to be able to hear him, but most importantly, I'm super grateful for the voice that you have in our country uh, and the way that you raise truth uh, and you do it with such power. So I, it is really my privilege to uh, introduce Charles Blow and Jesse Salazar, who is going to interview him. Uh, and um, so will you help me um, give a great and grand applause for Charles Baby as he takes the stage? <laughs> I won't call you Charles. Please baby. don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're 24 years old. You are the first, uh, I'm sorry, the youngest department head at the New York Times right. working on visual design. Yes. A uh, bit of a sensation. You become a visual columnist. But for the last few years, you've been focused on writing about politics and race. Right. So why is that? Why the transition? I don't, I don't guess I, I don't see it as a transition. It just okay. is an evolution. It probably is a better word for me. It is, um, you know, whatever feels right to me in the moment. I've, I've not, I've never been the sort of person who games out, you know, the next five years and ten years of your life and the things that they ask you in the interview and they say, you know, where do you see yourself? And, like I don't know. I'm just trying to do <laughs> this job, you know. Uh, and uh, so. For me, it, it, it was trying to be as natural and as genuine and as true to myself as possible. So I write about things that matter to me, things that are the most personal to me, things that I know about. Um, and I think that that is where your power is, is in being able to tap in, not trying to to emulate another person and to sound like someone else, but rather to sound like the most authentic version of yourself, um, to write about or to convey in any way the thing that you know, know most uh, personally and deeply, that is where you they are the authority, right? Um, one of the other columnists once said about the columns at the New York Times that uh, it should sound like a symphony, like that we should all be playing a different uh, instrument, but together it should sound great. And once I realized that my, the benefit of having me as a columnist was not that I sounded like the rest of the people in the room, because I was not. I, I'm the, you know, people say, you're the only black columnist. I'm, only, I'm also the only southern columnist at the New York Times. And once I realized that that is part of the way I sound, that is the part of the aesthetic of me, that is part of uh, that kind of Southern Gothic storytelling is part of the cadence of my uh, language. Uh, once I realized that, that it was not a demerit to have grown up poor, which was unlike the other columns at the New York Times, it is not a demerit not to have all gone to the, pretty much the same kind of prep schools and Ivy League schools, but my experience is very, all of that exists in the South in a very poor environment. Um, and that that is not a negative, but a positive because it, it allows me to bring to those conversations a completely different aesthetic and perspective. Um, and, and doing that has been empowering for me. And, and I hope that it comes across in the, in the language. It does. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because I think everyone in the country has very strong opinions on this election and what's happening in our country. But you have really created for yourself a distinct voice in talking about this election. So could you give me some, you know, sense of how you think you'll be talking to your grandkids about this election? About this election? About I hope I election. won't be talking to them about this election. <laughs> like, <laughs> I hope that on November 9th, I never have to talk about this election. Uh, but this, this national moment that we're in, where there is this real feeling of anxiety about the future of the country. Right. Uh, that anxiety is personified by a particular man, right? Uh, 
you know, with, so part of the thing at the Times is that we are uh, part of the ethics policy of the opinion columnists. It's not a written policy, but you know, you, we know it. Is that you, you're not supposed to uh, endorse anyone. That that's for the editorial board to do. Um, but they didn't tell me that I couldn't be against somebody. So. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, it is, it is really important to me, and it's not, and I don't write, people often write to me after writing columns and they say, oh, but, you know, his supporters won't take this, you know, they won't change their mind. I'm actually not writing to change anybody's mind. I really, do, I'm really not. I am, I am writing to bear witness to a moment that in the long sweep of history, if you look back at this time and you, and you look at what, what I said or what other people said in this moment that I think it is really important to be on the record as having taken a firm position in opposition of demagoguery and bigotry uh, and misogyny. I just, I feel like on a moral level that it is my responsibility that I have to say what I believe is true in this moment. And if that, if someone can use that in 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 their outreach, and and if they want to take that into, uh, put that in the hopper, with, if they're making decisions, so be it. If they don't, so be it. I really don't care about changing minds and votes and that sort of thing. That's not that's not really my job. My job is is truly to say, I see something. And I have an obligation, to say what I see. And that is what I'm doing. So, you know, I, I worry, though, that after Election Day, regardless of the outcome, our country has changed. Something is different. Something has, some things have been broken. Some, you know, demons have been brought back. Uh, can you talk about what you think? Unleashed. Um, can you talk about what you think the legacy of this election may be and what it's going to mean for our politics in the next few months and years? Uh, there are several, and you will be surprised to know that I think a couple might be positive, all right? Um, you know, I have never been under the uh, illusion that uh, there was not um, discrimination in this country, that there was not uh, bitterness, that there was not hatred, that there was not uh, uh, anti-whatever you want to put behind it and phobia, whatever you want to put in front of it, did not exist. In fact, it has existed from, from the moment that, you know, people, uh, uh, that America was formed. And in fact, that is part of the way that America was formed. Um, it was, uh, it was try, trying to disenfranchise some people, trying to civilize the Native Americans, which was basically a, an extermination process. Uh, you know, I, I, I have books, so I know that this is true. Uh, so, but, but what, what this is, what this cycle is doing and it may not necessarily be a permanent feature, but it is a current feature. It is that it is normalizing and elevating a certain strain of, of rhetoric and dialogue and, and saying that you know, people have told you for a decade or so that what you feel is, is not appropriate, but I am saying that you, it is appropriate and it is appropriate to voice it and, and, and you are justified in and feeling however you feel, no matter how offensive it is to other people, that is a real thing, and that will, that will outlast the election um, to some degree. Um, there is, you know, <laughs> strangely, I, I mean, I teach a class now at Yale, and we're, we're following this ele election in real time, and one of the things that we were talking about, and I believe this is true, is that uh, a tiny positive, tiny, is that, uh, it is also proven that um, politicians are not completely wedded to their past, no matter how horrible it is. Mm. Um, because they I have, have a chance to change. Huh? They have a chance to change. You have a chance to rehabilitation. Uh, 
and you can do some wildly horrible things in your youth and in your older age, people may not care so much about it. And you know, I have worried for quite some time since the advent of the internet and you know, kids posting literally everything. Like, you, you, if any of you have kids, oh, I know. How many times you had to tell your kids, like, do not do that? Like, you know, like the Library of Congress is keeping every tweet. Like, like you're not going to be able to get rid of this, right? Uh, and. And not only what you see, what you don't see, which is them sending like nude pictures of themselves to all the, you know, everybody they're interested in. And I'm like, do you have to do that to get a date? <laughs> like, uh, so I've been worried about that because young people do things that may be bad, just really bad judgment, and may say horrible things to each other and put it in social media. And I was worried that. 30 years from now, we would have a generation where very few of them could be, could seek public office because you'd have all this garbage. And one thing that this, this man has demonstrated is you could have been a horrible 20-something <laughs> and, and you still have a shot. Uh, I, I'm indexing Am all I of my... Instagrams right now <laughs> and really worried about what my future might be. Um, so, you know, I, I, about two weeks ago, there was a press conference at the Mayflower in DC. And I'm sorry, the Willard. And it was terrifying. There was an alt right think tank that pulled together all these journalists and supporters. And they had this sort of punchy, funny, like rollicking good time press conference where they talk about how you know they've never had so much attention they've never had so many new followers their you know money is flowing into their coffers um, they said you know our efforts to raise awareness about white nationalism have never been stronger we, you know we are poised to build a new generation of organization and it was truly terrifying to me that they just had that smirk of somebody who you know, has just won or feels like they've just won. Um, and so I'm a little worried about how you think this group, the social sector, can configure itself to combat efforts to you know, reinforce the racial hierarchy that exists. Listen, I mean, this is, this is what I call kind of the Buchanan legacy, right? He, he wrote that book where, I mean, I think that book was part of the reason he got, uh, was no longer booked on MSNBC or was let go. I think he was, you know, a contributor there or something. But, but basically he was, he, the argument he was making was a real one, which was, you know, it is something that people have said forever, power does not con concede itself. Like that, that, that people simply don't hand over power. <laughs> in any society, and that we, we just seem to think that uh, demographics will keep marching in a particular direction, and eventually things will just flip. And everybody, legacy power will say, huh, mm, we didn't have enough babies, you can have the power. Uh, <laughs> that's not the way it works. Um, people will cling to power with their last breath. And what, part of what you are seeing is a backlash against a rising demographic wave in which people see themselves being outnumbered. And, and, and you know, the America that people want back is one where that power was never challenged and, and where it was secure. And they see an insecurity in what is happening, they see the, the, the very structures that were meant to secure that power becoming threats to it, like the, the, the franchise of voting, which is why you see a, uh, you know, rush, people rushing to constrict uh, uh, the franchise of voting itself, because as the demographics change, it means that if, you, if, they, if each vote truly has only it has the same power, and I only have one, and you have one, and your numbers keep growing, that means eventually I won't have enough to maintain the power that I have. 
it, you know, it means that, uh, that you know, we get to a, uh, uh, an issue like the Second Amendment, which no one had ever taken literally to mean uh, uh, you know, a gun in every house and you can take it everywhere you go and go to the supermarket and go to the bar with you or whatever. And in fact, um, the, you know, the only people in America who have ever had their guns taken away by law on a state level were African Americans. So for, for me to know the history of, of how people had, had, had completely avoided embracing a Second Amendment when they thought that after the Emancipation Proclamation that they might turn into Haiti where black people had rebelled and killed white people and therefore they said, no, we have to go in and make sure that these black people do not have guns in their homes and literally pass state laws that made that legal to then turn around and say the first black president, he's coming to get your guns. I'm like, no, only people who ever had that gun taken away are black people. Stop this <laughs> nonsense. Uh, or, or, or to have, you know, like these uh, white people pushing to have more and more access, chance to buy more guns and to take them everywhere that they go, when in fact the only people we, people got upset about doing that were black people. When the, when the Black Panthers showed up in the Sacramento State House with guns, white people, including NRA, rushed to pass laws that prohibited people from showing up in public with guns. The Mumford Act was, was signed by Ronald Reagan. So, so, so let's dive into that a little bit, this history of, um, this history of segregation that has been a part of our, uh, our country's um, story, you know, there, there, is, uh, there was a comment that came up in a session um, yesterday that we are living in de facto Jim Crow. And I think that the events that have happened, the quickened pace of violence, the quickened pace of discord, have reinforced this idea that even if the law is not technically causing Jim Crow, there is still such a lasting legacy to racial um, hierarchy and racial separation in this country that, that the effect is similarly there. No, we are, we are, we are consciously resegregated. It's not de facto, it's like people are making conscious decisions to do this. It is the reason that states like Arkansas are seeing there are fewer and fewer black people there, and because there are fewer black people there, there's a rising tide of white people flowing into Arkansas, right? It is the reason that uh, when, when studies look at segregation of schools, schools as nationally are more segregated now than the year that Brown v. Board of Education was, was uh, ruled upon in the Supreme Court. We are doing this. This is not like a, this is not a passing thing. This is not a, you know, just a regional, you know, here, there, somewhere sort of thing. We are doing this. We do not want to, you know, people are separating themselves yeah. on purpose. Yeah. Um, you know, in the city of Baltimore, uh, in one of the efforts at reform for the police, the city has instituted this program where all police are required to take history courses in the history of race in Baltimore so that they can understand the processes of redlining, the processes of exclusion from business, from um, government entities, etc. Do you think there's value in propagating programs uh, for institutional actors to understand that history? Absolutely. I mean, nobody understands it. I mean, I, I the, you know, it's amazing that anybody has a program to understand. People who are being suppressed by it don't understand it. There, there is a tremendous loss of historical narrative and there, there has to be a conscious reclamation of that history because, you know, people, we've seen a, a spattering of books around this subject in the last few years and people are almost shocked by what the books say. And I'm like, how is it possible that you could be shocked by this? This is like a living history. This actually happened, probably in your lifetime, probably in your parents' lifetime, and you have no clue that it happened? 
How is that possible? And that is because it has been, it has been ex systematically excluded from how we educate. It has been scrubbed in many ways from kind of our oral uh, uh, histories and knowledge and what we choose to hand down from, from generation to generation. And what I am learning is that that has to be an active thing, that there is no passive way to, of transmittal of this information from one generation to the next. You have to actively instill and teach and make it a systematic part of how you transfer. If you do not do that, it simply will not transfer, and it will be lost. So, so two days ago, Aaron Belkin, was yesterday morning, Aaron Belkin, um, who had led some of the communications efforts around don't the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, said that one of their challenges is that they had study after study, research point after research point, that made the argument, that dismantled the arguments of advocates for Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but that they couldn't find the right ambassadors to carry that message forward, that nobody was going to believe the gay activists who were trying to make this argument, that it took a secretary of defense making these arguments. So who do you think in our country has the standing or the moral heft to be able to be the ambassadors for the message of this voluminous history that we have? See, this is a tough question for me because I come at it very differently. I mean, uh, in the sense that I, I am not of the mind that I should spend any of my time trying to educate you out of your ignorance. Um, you, one of my favorite quotes of, of Toni Morrison is that, you know, the great effect, one of the great effects of racism is distraction. It keeps you explaining things that don't need to be explained. It takes time away from you doing your work in the world and from you loving your family and from you teaching your children because you're constantly trying to explain this thing that they say, you're not capable of doing this, you're not smart enough for that, your people don't have a history in this, and you go and find the research and you say, no, this is true, and that is true, and all that time and energy and passion that you have put into that knocking down of that mythology and of trying to dispel another person of their ignorance it's time that you have taken away from doing your work in the world while they have been able to spend their entire time while you were out doing that research, putting in their work in the world. Why would I give you that? Now, I know that there are people who, for whom this is their life's work and trying to change other people's mind, and I do not knock them, and I, in fact, I applaud it. It is just that, personally, I am not one of those people. I won't give you my passion and my energy because I am too busy loving my people and my family and my friends and doing my work. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I, I agree that that's a, an unfair burden. You know, I had many mentors who knew that I wasn't quite as talented as some of the other kids when I, you know, got to school. And, you know, there are all sorts of things for the rural Latino kid. And, uh, you know, they, they took real time out of their day to mentor me, to give me guidance, to help me do something with my life. And I'm tremendously grateful for that. But every single one of them told me, now, the thing is, Jesse, you better give back. You better find somebody to mentor and continue to do that throughout your lifetime. That is your obligation. You do have to keep fixing, or, you know, supporting the community how right. you can. But that, but that is different than, that is different than fixing the defect in another, right? That is basically helping someone to see that they don't have a defect in themselves. Right. Right? That is the, it is in fact the inverse of, of that sort of outreach. I completely believe, I mean, if, if you start from the premise that race anthropologically has no basis in science, that, that on a genetic level, 
I am as likely to have as much in genetically in common with someone who looks white as someone who looks black in any room. That, that all of the anthropologists will tell you the same thing. It has no basis in fact that it is a, it is a weaponized construct designed to advantage some people in society and to disadvantage others. If you start from that premise, then any discrimination based on race is illogical and immoral. And I immediately assume that when you express a racist attitude, that I have the moral high ground. So therefore, I'm not, gonna, I'm not punching down. I've already dispensed with you because I don't have time for that. You haven't read enough. Also, if you understand that it makes no sense and that it is a weaponized tool, then you come to understand what Martin Luther King said at Stanford in 1967, that the ultimate logic of racism is genocide. That if, if you believe that I am somehow because of the racialized person that you have made me, not suited to sit next to you or live next to you, that eventually that line of logic means that I am not fit to live at all. I won't consume that sort of poison. So when I look at that sort of logic that your mentors were giving you, I say that all the time because part of what is important to me, what is edifying for me, is to look at every person and help them to see that this thing that has been imposed on you has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the people who want to assume and make you believe that God made a mistake that he has permanently assigned some people to a lesser status in, in society, that he permanently gave some people be, based on how much sun their ancestors got and how much sun they, some didn't and whether or not they lived in a cold climate or, or a hot one and whether or not their, their hair coiled to keep the moisture in and whether or not it was straight so that they fell into one of those cold lakes that they would lose that water as soon as possible, they wouldn't freeze to death. <laughs> Based on that, God made a mistake and permanently assigned different character traits to these people. And they did not. And it is a lie. And you are just as good, and you are just as smart, and you can be and do whatever you want as long as you do not let the weight of that lie rest on your shoulders. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think, that, I think that every person of color, minority voice in an organization feels in some way the weight of the lie the, of other people making assumptions about their identity. And, you know, I think it's a double burden that regardless of what you pursue as a person of color, you end up being asked to be a representative voice in some way for a larger group that may not emulate your experience. So, so how, do we, how do we go about as communicators at foundations and um, leaders of large nonprofits to lift some of that weight or to carry some of that weight? I mean, again, I mean, I'm probably going to be redundant here. I mean, I, just, I simply I come at it just from a different perspective, which is, I mean, People, kids first come to learn and to know by reflection. So the more you can give a child an opportunity to see themselves, the possibilities of themselves and people who look like them, achieving, um, 
frees, freed of the shackles, the more that child is free themselves. Well, I, I have never met a three-year-old who didn't want to learn everything in the world. And what we have to then say is at what point does society clip the wings of some? At what point does society shackle some? At what point do they rob them of dream? And then how do we attack that nexus point so that that stops happening? And there are a lot of ways across society that we do this. We do this damage, we do this violence to certain children and we pretend that we are not conscious of the fact that we are doing it. From the very moment that children are introduced to power structures in America, the disparities kick in. It is almost impossible to find a children's book that features minority children that is not about history, it is not about self-acceptance in their hair and their skin color. Almost none of the literature is about dreaming. They're not slaying the dragon. They are not capturing the alien. That what, all the, the adventure that we grant to white children is denied to black children. And they get, they get books about your hair is beautiful, even though it's, it's, it's curly. And they get books about Martin Luther King as a child. And they get books about Sojourner Truth as a child. And they never get books that say, you are strong and amazing and you can dream. And you, the same stars that you stare up at are the stars that everybody stares up at. And the dreams that you have are valid. From the time these children enter into preschool, their rates of suspension in preschool is incredibly disproportionate to their white counterparts. What the research tells us is that one suspension, even when you're a small child, impacts graduation rates, and if you don't graduate, impacts the rest of your life and your life earnings. What we know is that all children make mistakes. Well, not all children. Many children make mistakes around drug usage and small, you know, they experiment. And they, some smoke a marijuana or whatever. And that all the children do it at about the same rates, no matter what race they are. And yet 90% of all drug arrests are black and brown children. We know the mark that that leaves for the rest of that kid's life. In fact, in the 90s, you were, you were forbidden from even applying for federal financial aid if you had ever been arrested for a drug crime. They've since gone back on that. But every time I would hear someone say, there are more black men in prison than in college, which is not quite, the statistics is a little bit off. But I'm thinking, you do understand why that happened, right? Are you, are you literally trying to pretend that you're in the dark? Are you literally trying to tell me that you don't understand that nine out of 10 of the people, all of these kids were doing these drugs at the same rate and nine out of 10 of the ones that you arrested were black and then you told them that they could never apply for federal financial aid to go to college. So that they could never turn that mistake around. And then you have the, the audacity to blame them for being disproportionately represented in prison. You have the audacity after mass incarceration and sucking hundreds of thousands of black people, young marriage-age black men out of black communities, you have the audacity to say why are, are more of, not more of the children being born in black families being, not being born to black couples and only being born to black women when those women are now at a deficit of people who are marriage age because you have sucked them out and put them all in prison. 
for doing the exact same thing that everybody else was doing. Part of what has to happen is a mass education of our own complicity in the suppression of other people. And what we try to pretend is that actually that has nothing to do with me. It's sad, it's really sad, but that's over there. But what the Justice Department's um, uh, report, the second report in Ferguson taught us was that it actually has everything to do with you. Your hands have blood on them too. Because what that report taught us was that there are whole municipalities that are using police departments and turning them in from protect and serve to profit and punish. Local politicians face budget shortfalls and instead of doing one of two things, either raising taxes, which liberals would love, or cutting services, which, which, which conservatives would love, they do neither so that they can stay in office. And instead, they turn to police departments and to the courts. And they say, we have a 7% shortfall. You need to make it up. That means that they're them, pushing these police departments into more and more and more contacts with these poor and minority populations. That means that eventually, with all that tension, something eventually happens and somebody gets shot and then people go protest and we look at that like that has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with you. You know, there, there was a brief moment uh, a few months ago before the election really got underswing when the Koch brothers and the ACLU and Van Jones and Newt Gingrich all got together and they held events and conferences and rallies and they said, we need to come together to fix this broken justice system. This is a bipartisan issue. It's a national disgrace. And we're going to do something, damn it, about how bad these things have, have, have come. And the impact of that has been almost nothing and the conversation has changed. So what, what is the, for, for me, that isn't an issue of policy, that's an issue of communications. Somehow that narrative began to dissipate and the public attention toward these challenges was lost. How do we reclaim that? I mean, you, you keep pushing me into areas that's gonna make me and both me and you uncomfortable. So I'm gonna just say what's on my mind. So. I have to tell you, I, I really appreciate this conversation. All right, good. I really do. Good, because I don't know. I don't know how it's going. Okay. <laughs> I have. I think it's going great. I'll be honest good, with you. Good, good. I, I feel I, I'm sitting up here feeling genuinely touched and moved, and trying to keep it together. Good. So. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, because you're true. The, these are deeply inhumane crimes. I think Against the word that you're using, families. the inhumanity, the moral component of that, that is, that is still stuck in the back of my jaw about this push because conservatives didn't even come to the table until the state started to run out of money. They basically got to the point where they couldn't afford to keep enough human beings in cages and that is when they changed their mind about how many human beings they would like to keep in cages. And I come at it from a different point of view, which is a moral point of view. What kind of society do you want? Why do we even have private prisons? And, and, you, and people don't even register the depths of the immorality of a private prison. The fact that somebody's making money off of it is the first level of it, but that's not the only level of it. They don't have the same kind of mission, which is at least in some state prisons, part of the, the, the apparatus 
is to give them something to do, try to give a trade so that when there is reentry, which is a huge problem, that they have something that they can, they've learned to do. Private prisons don't have that. These private prisons in jail, they just let them lie there for months, weeks, nothing. What does that do to the spirit of a person? To have, not only to be part of this system, but to have nothing to put your hands to. Nothing to, no library. You know, what the, I mean, you just have to understand what that must be like for a person. And I'm from Louisiana, where we're going to take it up another notch. Has the highest prison per capita prison population in the country. In Louisiana, local sheriffs are allowed to own private jails. Think about that conflict. One of the reasons that Louisiana's if unemployment rate is artificially low is because you could be a failed farmer and they would hire you at the local private prison run by your local sheriff and it looks like everybody is more employed and also you're sucking massive numbers of people out of the unemployment field so they're never going to look for a job. So it looks like they have a low unemployment rate. No, they just have a bunch of people in cages and a bunch of people to watch them. So, so we need to turn to questions, but I want to uh, I want to get real with you for a second about an oh, this hasn't been real. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, we're about I to wanna, get real. I'm, I'm going to tell you the story of the first time I cried at work. Okay. Um, and you know, you were talking specifically about prisons, but I worked in government, and I had the experience of seeing these systemic failures constantly. And there was a morning that I was on my way to work. And I got a call saying that a city block in a Latin neighborhood had blown up. The gas line had broke, and there was a huge fireball. Seven people were killed, including you know, a young baby, an elderly couple that were asleep in bed. And it really was a devastating sight. So of course, everyone's trying to figure out, well, who's responsible for this, and why did this happen, and will this happen again? Right. And it turned out that you know, all of the gas lines were old. They were from the 20s. Mm -hmm. and the gas company had no interest in paying for the lines, and the government had no interest in requiring them to update the lines. And I remember the moment when we had the families of the people who had been killed in this fireball and neighbors uh, in that neighborhood saying, okay, so what are we going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? And I had to sit there and try to explain to them that really no action Right. was going to be taken. That we were going to study it, and we were going to write some letters to some people and try to do some public shaming. Um, but the experience of telling these families that these lives didn't matter enough to the company or to the powers that be was, I have to tell you, one of the most devastating early experiences. And it was then that I sort of felt what you were explaining, this sense that these human lives don't have the weight enough to make people do something about their suffering. So I, um, you know, I just I, I see this in um, so many places. You see it with the water system. There are people that say we are not going to take action to make sure that these kids don't get neurological disease, right. um, and on and on and on. Right. So maybe this is a little too grisly. I know we don't have much time. We should go to questions. <laughs> but I want to maybe end with something a little bit nicer. So about 100 foundations Anything recently. Anything would be nicer. Yeah. Sorry, Sean was like, this is going to be so fun. You're going to have such a great conversation about all the interesting topics. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, you know, about 100, about 100 foundations came together after the shootings in Dallas. And they signed on to this message saying that, you know, the, the country is now in this moment of real discord and despair. And they were trying to put out a message that provided some kind of counter-narrative to what was happening in the country. And they said, you know, we're not asking you to take policy action. We're not asking you to, you know, go out and do a specific thing. We want you to share reasons for hope that you see in your communities um, and 
with that, you know, they asked people to promote their reasons for hope. So what then, Charles, would be Oh, this is not going to be as nice as you thought it was going to be. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you something. I'm not interested in narratives. Okay. I, I really don't. I don't. I'm just not. I'm, that's not my thing. I mean, I, I'll go back. We'll end on Martin Luther King. I'm interested in policy. Mm. One of the strongest things King ever said, he said, the law may not make you love me, but it can keep you from lynching me. I don't care about how you feel about me. I care about whether or not the tax dollars that we have all contributed to are being used to, to build highways to enter your suburb or put some more pipes down here so my kids don't get lead poisoning. That's what I care about. So the narrative part is not, it's not, I'm not, even as a writer, as a communicator, I guess, on some level, it's just not my thing. I want to see how are we going to spend our collective resources and are we so immoral that we will let some people die so that some people could live a better life? And that, to me, is outrageous. All right. All right. Now we're going to take a few questions <laughs> that from was the perky audience. As I, that's as perky as I get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I don't know who has the mics. I can't really see down. Tristan, um, maybe start here and then Kim. My name is Lane Americaner, and I'm with People for the American Way. Um, and I just wanted to first start by thanking you for being here Thank and you. thanking you for your amazing writing, which I know has been an inspiration to so many of us. I just wondered if you could speak a little bit about your writing process, anything you'd like to share about sort of how you go from having an idea for a column to actually having the finished product of a column. Uh, it, my writing process is uh, like a four-step process. Panic, 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 write. Like, <laughs> that's the way I do it. <laughs> we have Kim. Right here, Kim in the first row. I'll sit since I'm in front. I appreciated your remarks deeply, and I wondered, in light of what's been happening in the last year or so, if you could talk just a little bit about self-care, your, your message about um, not needing to be an educator in, an, in a moment of time where in, in every direction you're being asked, either from people like yourself or people who are trying to learn from you, how are you taking care of yourself and what are you saying about the importance of taking care of yourself to, so that we can make it through this moment? intact? Um, I mean, one of the things that I do in writing that I, that is very selfish in a way, although hopefully other people get something from it as well, you know, is that I have interviewed more of these mothers who've lost children than I care to remember. I have sat across from them and watched them vacillate from crying to laughing within minutes. I mean, it's, it's really interesting to watch. And the fact that I can now anticipate that it's going to happen, that I carry a handkerchief now, uh, that, you know, that, that I immediately know how to set them at ease because they are so used to or, or, or hesitant about people being in their space that they're going to be taken advantage of. And, and I can quickly say, I'm not that guy. Um, but part of what I do every time that I'm with one of those mothers is that I, I, need, I need for them to be human. I need to make them human. Like, not, not, not that they've been robbed of it, but that I need 
I need people to understand, like, I need to write it as, what am I seeing? Did, she, did, did his mother just wrap her arm around mine because she cannot get out of this car because she's literally exhausted? And, or the moment she whispers to me, I just want to go home and go to sleep and never wake up again. Like, those moments when I just feel like, okay, this is a human being. And I don't want to ever forget that. And I want to write it as if that person who was killed is a human being who had a life made of my good choices and bad ones. Lord knows I have good ones and bad ones. And if in the middle of me making one of my bad choices, if I had lost my life, I would like for people to remember that I, I was a person and I had a life. I had a family who loves me and they are hurting because I am gone. And I try to remember that and write it that way so that it's not ever in those moments about big and it's not about people yelling at them and it's not about people releasing all their records about all the horrible things that they did, but rather that they were once a kid who dreamed and, and, had, and made choices. And some of them are good and some of them are bad, but they deserved to live. And, and, and something about that helps me to move to the next one. And unfortunately, there seems to always be a next one. But if I just keep remembering that they're real and they're not numbers, it's somehow therapeutic for me, and I think for their families, and I hope for the people who read it. I'm not choosing people. I don't know who's doing this. Um, how about right behind you, Emma? Hi, thank you for being here. I wanted to ask a little bit more about what you said about narrative and policy change, because I think a lot of the people in this room do see narrative as a path to policy change. I'm wondering what you think, if not narrative, is the path to the policy changes we need. I guess I'm making a philosophical point, which is that the truth does not con require consensus, and that narrative seeks to build consensus. That there is a moral truth, there is a moral thing that's right, and if I have to wait to build consensus around what is right, it justifies the idea that when there is no consensus, that it is okay for me to be oppressed. That, it, that, that the idea that you should have to build consensus is in fact anti-American because this country is founded on the premise that the minority would not be oppressed by the majority. That the entire system of government is set up that way, that the entire language of the founding documents, is the, that principle is enshrined. And either we believe those documents or we do not. Either you believe that it was always wrong to subjugate some people because of who they loved, or because of what color they were, or wh where they were from, or you do not. You do not get to come out after the polls switch over to more, you know, the majority saying, now we think it's okay for you to marry, and then we say, you know what, I've had a change of heart, and now I believe in it. No, I, I, I take personal offense to that because it means that you, there's something problematic in you that allows this to exist where you can only go with the herd and that there is no moral clarity within you that allows you to see that truth in people who are not like you, in people whose numbers are not as great as yours. And maybe that comes from a person who understands that in this country, I will always be a minority. The trend lines on black people in America is always, is never gonna be, you know, it's flattened out. I'm not, I don't, I don't, I just cannot buy into the consensus necessity. I think you have to buttress the moral argument and make it as strong as possible and say, either you believe in right or you do not.
And Charles, I want to thank you so much. Thank you. For providing us this clarity and honestly for waking us up. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. fire this thing up? Okay. You really want to know? Still not on. Podium. I hate standing in front of a podium. I'll hold the podium. You really want to know? Alright, so here's the thing. I uh, had promised Alfred that I would be kind of his opening act for the next session and tell you where we're gonna go. Uh, but I guess, just maybe a round of applause, how many people wanna know now? All right, one of you's gonna have to explain to him. We had kind of this fun thing set up. T, you think we can still do that thing that we wanted to do, the email? No. And Shooty is saying no. They're saying no. I'm sorry, guys. I tell you what, if you're about to leave, like you show me your bags, I will tell you. Um, I wish I could. We have kind of a big, fun thing that we want to do, but we actually need to get folks out of this room to get reset for the next one. I'm really sorry. Can I give you a hint? And then you'll come back in here for Alfred's amazing session. You've had the opportunity to know the entire time you're here. There's a very good chance many of you are carrying it around with you right now. That's the hint. I'll tell you in about an hour. What's that? Shattered dreams, worthless years, here. 